Welcome to Relationship Mastery, a podcast for those who want to learn how to master the art of creating happy, healthy, and loving relationships. Please join me, Dell Lady Jones, and my co-host, Barry Selby, each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific for a lively and informative conversation on everything to do with relationships. Hi, Barry. It's lovely to be here again with you this week. It is indeed. Glad to be here. Good to see you as well. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, we had fun last week. We, we, we talked about, it was our first show together and we talked about where we got our relationship models from, talked a little bit about our parents and we touched on the subject of, um, codependency and we did actually get a request to talk a bit more about that, to go a little deeper. So, um, you know, cause obviously your experience of codependency was different to my experience. So I think that'd be a great way to explore that. Absolutely. I think it's a good idea because the, the truth is that codependency is not one one way of doing things. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience everyone goes through, but it's all different flavors, I'll put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, <clears throat> maybe I'll just start with the, I, I identify as the classic codependent. Um, as mm-hmm. I mentioned last week, I, I grew up in an environment where um, I would say one of the main factors of my codependency is growing up without a father that I would actually see in the streets and he wouldn't acknowledge me. And my interpretation of that was that um, I wasn't good enough to be loved, that I, um, that if I'd been, you know, you say like prettier, cleverer, skinnier, anything, uh, I would have been, he would have claimed me as his child. He would have owned me. So what that did is it set me up with that, that feeling that um, I needed to be with somebody else, as you said last week, and I often use the same phrase, to complete me, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which often yeah. meant um, I thought there were qualities in somebody else that I didn't have, which was, as we know, is a complete um, innocent mistake. We all have everything within us. But some of us have this thinking that has us hold back. So the way that my codependency manifested in life, and this is also quite interesting because sometimes people think codependency means that you are like so dependent on another person. But what right. I was, what I did is I became super independent to prove that I wasn't codependent. Mm-hmm. But I still had some of the classic traits like people pleasing. Um, you know, very much, uh, and that's a training as well. My mother was a caretaker. We had homes for mentally disabled people and handicapped people and mentally ill people. And so it was always about negating your own needs and putting other needs first. So that was another way I showed up. And as I said, that needless and wantless, I don't know if that resonates with you, but I didn't want to drive people away. I, I wanted to keep them happy. So not just the people pleasing, I actually pretended I was needless and wantless. You know, I made no demands on another person because what if they said, oh, that's too much, I'm leaving you. So it it just showed up in so many different ways for me. So I'd love to hear from you. And we can keep going backwards and forwards because I've got a yeah. ton more. I've got a ton more, but how many? <laughs> a bucket full of them, yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> Thank God that in the past but you know I can but um tell me how how your codependency showed up well I was going to say one thing that I'm I'm saying in reflection to what you just said is there is a certain sense where oftentimes our external presentation doesn't match your internal reality exactly and so codependency is one of those things that does that and I know for myself I was always 
basing my value upon whether or not other people like me or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the really the classic paradigm of codependency because we externalize all our feelings on other people. Mm-hmm. And I did that a lot when I was younger, where because being bullied in high school, that really put me in a place where I didn't feel okay. I didn't feel good enough. I judge myself because of how people perceive me rather than actually from how I knew myself to be later on, knew myself to be. Mm-hmm. So, and being around the girls, they were taking, to be blunt, taking pity on me. <laughs> they, weren't, they were being nice to me basically because I wasn't a threat to them. Mm-hmm. So even, even in that arena, I wasn't necessarily being respected or accepted at anything beyond tolerance. Mm-hmm. Wow. So for me, that was the environment I was, was going through in school with a family dynamic. It's, it's funny, it wasn't an overt, I'm just looking back in terms of the codependency. It was there because it's the way we lived life. It's the way we connected, the way we were dependent upon each other for that feeling of being loved. But it wasn't necessarily as classic patterns of it so much as it just was the way life is. And I think, to be honest, the majority of people, if they're willing to report this in public, had the similar experience where the, the home environment just was so enmeshed with each other because that's the way they thought, because there was some way I thought, that love was expressed, the way that relationships worked, the way the family dynamic was, is that we functioned that way because anything else would be somehow the antithesis or the um, rebellion against the family dynamic. Mm-hmm. So be like happy and, and pleasing other people because I wanted them to please me. Is this, this this give and take thing was very enmeshed in that sense because it was, you know, saying no wasn't a thing we tried to do, it did very much because that was always like saying no may make people think less of me. So I don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I was definitely a people pleaser that way too. Yeah. So yeah, I had a few things to work on. <laughs> you know what I love? The reason I love these conversations with you is because we had such a different upbringing. And mm-hmm. yet we, we both relate to codependency in such a different way. You know, as I explained last week, you know, my mother, I, I never witnessed my mother, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a little croaky here. I never witnessed my mother in interaction with a man. Um, my mm. mother had been married initially, so my older siblings saw her in a relationship. But f- f- with me, I only ever saw my mother in two relationships, one with my father and one with my younger sister's father. And, and the men weren't in our lives. So I never got, so I saw super independence um, or, yeah. or it looked like, I'm sure there was massive amounts of codependency there, but my, right. it manifested in my mother in the, um, you know, I'm independent, I don't need anybody because of a fear of her codependency. And that's what I also love to do. I mean, I remember when I was a child, I remember drawing a picture of, well, when I'm married, I'm going to live on this hill with my little house and my husband <laughs> on this hill in his little house and he can leave his, yep. he can leave his toothpaste and toothbrush at my house. I really, that was my model of, of super independence. But as I said, deep inside, there was this f- massive fear of abandonment, which I think is a, a shame and abandonment are the underpinnings of codependency. Shame that you don't, that you feel there's something inherently wrong with you that you're unlovable in my manifestation of codependency. And the other one was this absolute fear of being abandoned because I'd been abandoned by my father. So I was that classic, um, how it also manifested besides the ones I just mentioned was um, I needed to be needed. To me, if I was needed in a relationship, that was my insurance. They won't leave me if I'm needed. So Mm -hmm. I tend to 
tended to, um, you know, give everything to the other person to sort of, you know, keep them like, you know, not wanting to leave me because, oh, oh, my knees are getting met here. I never get any pushback. Or the mm-hmm. other one was they were either maybe had struggled in some area, maybe it was addiction, maybe whatever that area was. And I was the sort right. of, you know, damsel in shining armor, not the damsel in distress. And I'd rescue people again, because then I thought if they need me, they won't leave me. So how, does any of that res- resonate with you? I never, I never had a fear of abandonment because I wasn't raised in that environment. Yeah. So first of all, that thing, however, the behavior was not much different because I was basically being around people because I want to be liked. Mm. So it wasn't about the fear of abandonment. It was about being valued or liked was my prize by doing what I did. Yeah. So even though I was also wanting people to be around me and wanting to connect and oftentimes overdoing it and becoming um, almost saturating them too much mm. because I wanted them to like me. Yeah. It was about approval. It was about being liked. That was the underpin for me. Mm. So again, same behavior but different under, underneath for both of us it's interesting because because we do have our own unique path as, as everybody does to learn through and to grow through but so even though we maybe have behavior that, that looks similar to other people's the reasons why can be very different yeah yeah and it's that's what i find so fascinating is is you know going back there with my clients and i just, it's almost like being a, a surgeon it's like it's unearthing, <laughs> unearthing where that 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 sort of you know what i could use the word you know wound or or that that thing that needs to be discovered and plucked out and understood where it came from but let's just get rid of it and now and now we can feel differently and show up differently but um yeah. some of the other things i'm just trying to think um well, oh my goodness weak boundaries well that again goes with that you know for me fear of abandonment you know or you mm-hmm. know in like i would like i'd set a boundary and if somebody violated that boundary in a relationship i'd always go oh well maybe that wasn't really my boundary and let me just move it back let me just move it back mm-hmm. a couple of feet and moving the goal <laughs> moving the goalposts in their favor not mine and right right um, but the thing is you know when we do that all we're ever doing is teaching other people how to treat us and if the other person and we're going to talk about this next week you know because often the Mm -hmm. the perfect partner for a i mean a codependent is a narcissist and we'll go into that next week but if say if you are in a narcissistic partnership and you're codependent and you're moving those goalposts to accommodate their behavior. All we're doing is teaching them to just keep barreling ahead because they know that we will keep accommodating them. So that was the huge one for me was the, um, was that, you know, the weak boundaries. And I'm sure again, you know, you're identifying very much as the people pleaser. So I'd love to hear what, what your experience with your boundaries were. Well, that's the thing is, is, Boundaries is, is boundaries are an indication of not being codependent, just to be clear for anybody listening. For me, that need to be approved of, that need to be loved, that need to be valued, meant that boundaries were only something that would get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have boundaries. I'm just looking back, to be honest, just to verify if this is true or not. From my own memory, I don't recall having made very effective boundaries anyway, not just in relationship, but any any paradigm I was in whether business or friendship social whatever it was I felt that I had to be fully in so that they would love me enough mm. so this this 
I won't say toxic, but certainly this messy environment was definitely something I had to un- unpack and, and rewire. And underneath all of it for me, and this has been the work I've been on for the last, well, couple of decades at least, is really having the relationship with myself be the healthy one. So then there's no need for me to keep seeking outside to be fulfilled and that way create healthy boundaries. And this, this is more of the curative piece. Mm-hmm. But definitely the shift was to have to do the deep work to change that because there isn't an... I would suggest that we don't necessarily evolve out of codependency like as, as a natural course of things. It's like codependency is with us until we choose to change it. Absolutely. So the patterns we run, we'll keep running on autopilot. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned earlier about having the doctor going in through the wind. I think the word comes up for me in this whole thing is really being more of an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. You're digging in the history, you're like unearthing ancient artifacts of our own behavior. Yeah. That are still running. But it's important to know what it is. It is, it is good to discover what the drivers are of why we do stuff because oftentimes for a lot of us adults, we're still doing habits and not even realizing why we're doing it because it's been forever we've done it. Yeah, 100%. We just think it's, um, you know, just the way we are and we, we, we don't know that there is this sort of um, thing that's operating behind the scenes. And, um, and you know, as you were speaking, it's because that's the other thing with me you know my self-esteem was so low that I was always seeking validation from the outside I, I couldn't I just you know there was nothing in me to in my childhood that I felt validated by I felt certainly abandoned by my father physically I never I, I didn't speak to him until I met him when I was turning 30 actually face to face we exchanged words I used to see him in the street all the time growing up but my mother also sort of abandoned she did she tried her best um but she was very busy and she was taking care of this you know big home we had and she wasn't really present for us so I believe it, I just didn't feel loved as a child. I didn't feel I got love. So I was always looking for that validation from the outside as opposed from the inside. But when I hear right. you speak, it sounds like your environment was very loving and I'm enmeshed, as you said, but loving. So I'm curious where this need in you to get validation came from. Well, the th- Essentially, you say it's very loving. It's a really interesting label to <laughs> reference because everyone's experienced it different, and, yeah. and like yours is different from mine. So that bringing, I did have that stability of a, of a stable, in quote, stable family. My parents were, you know, in married together, very enmeshed, and they modelled that, of course, for me and my brother. Mm-hmm. They, they, they. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of an exact actual examples, but there's certain things along the way. Actually, one example comes up, and this is actually a, a negative experience in the sense is that I was probably. 15 or 16, I'd give or take, I think it was mid-teens. My dad did something in his work that basically put got him in trouble. And my mum was panicked because she was worried because he was the sole breadwinner. Mm-hmm. So she was afraid he was going to lose his job. He didn't, in fact. He had he got reprimanded and got changed to a different position. But the fear that came up in her because of what happened was so blown up because of that dependency thing that was going on between the two of them. Now, of course, uh, my parents definitely came through that um, codependent and, and the old paradigm from the from the 40s and 50s where there was the mother was the, the wife would be a stay at home and would raise the kids and the family very domestic and the man would be the breadwinner. So that was the culture that I was raised with. Mm-hmm. And that moment in time was the most panic I ever felt too because I felt my mother's panic mm-hmm. and that fear came up. 
because her family had been very like smooth sailing for a long time. That one moment, even though it didn't ultimately change anything really, except the income went down a little bit, the fear that came up because of the possibility of the hiccup in the calm waters, so to speak, mm-hmm. so, um, created such a ripple effect, a reactive place that my mom didn't trust my dad for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And that they put me and my brother, or, well, it can't speak for my brother, put me on edge to a degree as well. Is that I wasn't so sure because up to that point, everything was trustable as far as I can put it. But again, that needing to be approved of and being light was kind of the. Sorry, I'm just seeing another thought coming in. So I'm going to get that one in a second. <laughs> Put that on the side. <laughs> the, Park it. it was, was, yeah, exactly. Was coming through. And and to switch over to that one for a second, you know, coming coming from this somewhat minority of that place. I mean, I, I come from a Jewish family in England. And where I lived in London, we weren't in the main Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And we weren't in Golden Green back then, which kind of the hit was the main place for it. But we were in the, in the East End. And I remember there was this sense of being very much isolated because our, our synagogue was not a couple of miles from where I lived, but it felt like we were all, and this is totally my own inner stuff. Nobody said anything. It wasn't visual. It was no notification, but I carried this sense of being under the thumb or being under the watchful eye when I was going to the temple. Mm-hmm. There was something about not being accepted, not being liked, which is what fueled my need to be liked and approved of. So not only in my family, but in my religious upbringing, there was this, it didn't feel relaxed yeah. for me. Gosh. It it. Yeah, it's waking me up to that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you're mentioning that, I, I see that there is a cor- cor- correlation between some of our experiences. And and for me, it it was not just the sort of dysfunction within my own family situation, but you know being illegitimate back in the 1950s it was 1959 when i was born so it was the early 60s but it certainly wasn't california and the whole hippie thing it was puritanical wales but i felt that when you were describing the you know the area you grew up in and that there you know you were a minority in that area that's i think where we do feel because i definitely you know went to a little village school i lived in in the countryside and my father lived in the village with his family um but we would go to the village school and in the village school it was very very you know the words bastard and illegitimate were used quite a lot not just by the children but the the teachers and Mm -hmm. so for me that um fear of being judged and i mean we all have it we're we're primal we we want to connect we want to be in our tribe we want to be in our community and I think when that is not safe as a child, that's where you pick a lot of that people-pleasing habits up, you know, that's that seeking to be accepted, to feel safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me as a young child, I didn't feel safe. So I had that, um, you know, hyper-awareness, hyper-tuned in to everybody around me. You know, it was all, all about reading somebody else you know, reading their cues, their, their, their body language, their look in their eyes, you know, do they like me? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to be cruel to me? Whatever they, you know, was, so we develop that hypersensitivity. And it's sort of interesting. We, we become master manipulators in getting and charming and trying to get people to like and accept us. The thing for me, just because that was the thing that's different, again, we all learn different ways, is I 
to a large degree, to be honest, spent much of my time ignoring what I was learning. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't learn to be better at detecting people or noticing people. I would like go, hopefully this person will like me instead. And then I get wounded or hurt by that person. But the next one, like maybe this person will like me instead. So I was never, I was never so cautious as maybe as you were learning to be. I was actually much more, you know, it's like, please like me. It wasn't that, it wasn't that overt. Yeah. But that was what was driving underneath was that need to be loved, to be liked by other people because I didn't at that time feel safe enough to love myself, to care about myself. So, of course, we weren't raised with that, those values. So that, um, I, would, I would say hunger is a bit of a strong term, but certainly that neediness was mm-hmm. in my awareness as a kid. And especially when I got um, responded to by bullying and by violence from other kids, it really knocked my sense of self out of whack. Mm-hmm. And that was also because of the, again, the Jewish thing. I was the one of the, I was probably one of four Jewish kids out of us, about 700 kids in the school. Oh my goodness. So, so, so even though we didn't look different to the other kids, mm-hmm. we were seen differently. Yeah. And that, and of course it was the excuse. This is the thing, just a, just a step way above this for a second. There was a definitely a tendency in culture and in behavior to demean the other type of people who were not like us. Mm-hmm. That's kind of why into our societies and certainly into our governments, the way they treat us sometimes. Yeah. So I understand that's a bit of reality. It's not like that they were looking for that, mm-hmm. but just that, that was the use as the leverage to create. And and again, step me back for a second. I know these boys who were bullying me were doing it for their own self support because they didn't feel mm-hmm. worthy probably either. Mm-hmm. But as a 11 year old, I couldn't fa- fathom that out. So I didn't know the big picture. Cause again, we're kids. We don't know these yeah. things. Looking back in hindsight, it's so much easier to see the truth, mm-hmm. but you know, we can't exactly go back and fix it that way. <laughs> Although we can. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we can. We just, we can, we can, you know, every day is a fresh start. There's another couple of things I also wanted to touch on in what I identified in my codependency, and that was, was two things, actually. One was settling for crumbs, you know. Um, yeah. That was a huge one for me. And and again, I grew up on crumbs. What did I know any different? You know, a little bit of, mm-hmm. I remember being in a very, very abusive relationship, emotionally abusive, and, 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 you know, a lot of the gaslighting and we're going to talk about, we're going to go through all these subjects in later episodes. That gaslighting, you know, I would, you know, and, and, and the, the cheating and the affairs and the whole thing and then making you think that you're crazy. I would always say to myself, well, at least he doesn't hit me. You know, I mean, what right. that is to me. At least that, yeah. At least that. Yeah. I mean, talk about settling for crumbs. I mean, thank God I am, for the last 13 years, have been in the most beautiful relationship where I get, you know, I'm certainly not getting crumbs. I get the whole cake. It's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that, was, that was the one thing. And then the other one I wanted to touch on very quickly too was um, taking things personally. Oh, my God, when I learned, to really not take another person's behavior personally. Um, classic, again, codependency. It's that whole sort of like, um, do you like me? Do you like me? Um, um, yeah. And then if they walked away from you, I was like devastated. It was never, now I'm just like, well, I haven't had to do that. <laughs> but, but it was like, it's just not a good fit. It's just not a good fit. Right. But it, it was, I always took it personally. If somebody walked away from me, it was because I was defective. I wasn't good enough. And it wounded me so deeply. Even if I'd only been with somebody three months, I took it so personally. So any of that for you? Oh, definitely. The, the, that, that sense of being 
um, as I said, being liked was kind of a key thing. And that also meant that people had to, you know, appreciate or care about me some way. They had to demonstrate for me to know that because I didn't, I couldn't tell without some sort of evidence mm-hmm. to see that I was being cared for. But something just hit me when you talk about that is I'm realizing that in current times with social media, so many kids and actually adults too, their mood is controlled by the number of likes they get on their posts. Oh yeah. Yeah. That is that is the epitome of codependency right there because we're there, we're valuing our own self esteem on what other people do for us, yeah, to us, towards us. Yeah, exactly. So this is something true now. So what we're talking about isn't just ancient history, maybe for us, but for a lot of people, it's still current if they're on social media and they're feeling themselves being swayed by how many likes they get, or if their their posts get as many likes as their friends do, whatever that is, all that. Um, comparison stuff becomes a trap as well. No, 100%. So, so I mean, yeah. I, th- I think we're talking about codependency being, you know, something in the past for us. I mean, mine still pops up every now and again, but at least I'm aware of it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I see you. But, you know, it's it's absolutely, it's an epidemic in our society, especially, as you said, promoted by social media. But we are coming up on our time for this week. We could We could do... Another three hours on this subject. One thing I want to get, I want to give people homework. Oh, good. Okay, great. <laughs> well, because the thing is, yeah, well, the thing is, it's, and, and I mentioned it earlier, and I'll say, say more emphatically now, is that the challenge with codependency is we keep, I should say the um, the wiring of codependency is that we're always seeking outside for the love mm-hmm. or for the approval or for the need where that is. Because for many of us, we weren't raised with a value system to put our own love first. Yeah. So homework for anybody watching this who want or listening to this who wants to do something to change their paradigm themselves is what is your relationship with yourself? How can you change? How can you shift? How can you up level your own relationship with the one in the mirror? You know, what can you do to love yourself and care about yourself more? It sounds simplistic to say love yourself. Yeah. However, if you realize when somebody else is trying to is being tempted to impinge upon you by their likes or not liking you, notice it's them, not you. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So about creating healthier boundaries. So sorry, you're gonna to add to that, you have some thoughts. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. And that's gonna be another episode about what is <laughs> you know, real love. What is loving yourself? Because I got a whole lot of comments to make about that too. So <laughs> for today we, we are gonna um leave it at that. So I hope you enjoyed mm-hmm. Joe and please join us again um next week. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Del. See you next time. See you next time. We trust you enjoyed this episode and invite you to share this with your friends and loved ones. In fact, please subscribe to our Relationship Mastery podcast that we all get each new episode fresh and shiny as soon as it is released. We'd love to hear from you as well. So go ahead and enter your questions and comments at relationshipmastery.show. Take good care. We will connect with you in our next episode of Relationship Mastery.